Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Now here's your host, C.W. Hall. Hey everyone, it is C.W. Thank you for checking out the Health Connect South Radio show. With much of today's healthcare reimbursement being tied to patient outcomes, part of which includes a measure of patient satisfaction, as well as seeing measurable progress in regards to their health issues they're dealing with, hospitals and physicians are looking for ways to better engage their patients both from an education perspective so that they would be more likely to be compliant with whatever prescribed regimen is set out for them, while at the same time improving the patient's level of satisfaction with their engagement with that hospital or physician. Enter the solution that Bioscape Digital provides, Vice President of Healthcare Strategy for Bioscape Digital, Sean Kant, stopped by to talk about how they're using a mobile device coupled with engaging applications and easy-to-follow navigation on the device, augmented by patient education materials as well as marketing materials about other services the physician or hospitals provide. Their solution is being deployed in areas where patients tend to wait a long period of time, say in an ER waiting room or even in a treatment room when they're waiting to be seen, or in places like labor and delivery, for example, where a family and patient are going to be waiting for long periods of time for things to happen. They're able to engage with these mobile devices, consume the content on them, make time pass faster, and pick up information that could be useful to both patient and organization, actually. And I've been saying for a long time now that big data is ultimately going to make it much more difficult for people to defraud both government plans like Medicare, Medicaid, as well as third-party commercial insurance companies through nefarious billing activities. Our country is paying hundreds of billions of dollars every year due to fraudulent charges to Medicare, Medicaid, and third-party insurance companies. And Mashir Ahmed, founder of a company called FraudScope, just completed his PhD. He's a computer scientist, and he saw an opportunity to begin using data and its ability to be queried in a number of ways to actually begin to identify patterns within billing submissions. And he has seen that his algorithms he developed to be able to analyze claims and billing data is very accurate with regards to identifying real and even fake healthcare organizations that are submitting fraudulent claims. FraudScope is currently actively looking for healthcare organizations and third-party billing companies that are looking to reduce the rate of occurrence of fraudulent claims being paid by them. So stick around for the interview with Sean Kantz and Mashir Ahmed coming up next. Good morning, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Health Connect South Radio Show, episode 60 already. Can't believe we're at 60. Jay Schaefer with me in the studio. We're talking to a couple of technology companies today that are using a variety of innovations to be able to, one, stop fraud, two, to engage patients and educate them at the same time and and help them have a better experience when they are waiting in a hospital or other outpatient settings. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting into it with these guys. But anything coming up with Health Connect South we need to know? Yeah, look at the website. There's more information about the September 21st event at the Georgia Aquarium. Save the date, September 21st, and there'll be a radio coupon for our loyal listeners. And joining us in the studio, we've got Sean Kant. He is with Bioscape Digital. He's with the company that I was talking about using mobile technology to help engage patients. And we've got Mashir Ahmed from Fraudscope, and they're going to talk about how they're helping to clamp down on 
fraud in the Medicare system and help us keep those dollars going where they should go. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about that as well. So thanks for being here with us, guys. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Sean, let's start with you and we'll get into Bioscape Digital and um, give folks your background because you started out on one path and then you switched tracks and went to another. I did. Uh, it's a bit non-traditional, but uh, it's something that has been exciting and you know very grateful of the opportunities that have been presented to me. So after college, uh, I attended Emory University actually for college and then ventured away to medical school and after medical school decided to get my MBA. And it was during the MBA experience where I came across our CEO, Stuart, who came and spoke in one of our entrepreneurship classes. And he and I got to talking about some of the unique items that they were doing and accomplishing in the hospitals. And, you know, when I was uh, a third and fourth year medical student, there was a need. You had this captive audience at a hospital setting. There's all these resources that hospitals already provide to their patients. However, there's all this additional content that wasn't getting utilized there was a prime opportunity to get in front of patients at that time. And during the clinical rotational experience, I realized there's a lot more we could be doing out there um, in order to take advantage of that opportunity. And then when I got my MBA and came across Stuart and realized what he was doing, he's already tackling that need uh, is when he and I connected. And here I am uh, working for Bioscape one year later. Wow. So was it hard for you to think about leaving the, the medical path? It was challenging. Um, there is an element of clinical medicine that I do and like, hence why I you know, went to med school in the first place. My initial plan was to go get my MBA and then return to residency and pursue entrepreneurial healthcare initiatives post-training um, and, and you know, once I get going. But when this opportunity came about with Bioscape, I realized I had a, uh, a time frame where I could really benefit the company and think also help out with some of the structure. And it was a growing organization as well. And so I figured, you know what, why not? Uh, let's, let's do it and see what happens. So in your role as vice president of healthcare strategy, what are the main things that you spend your day focused on? No, that's a great question. So um, as I said, we are a growing company, but uh, a lot of us hold many hats. And so there's every day is different. There are some days, you know, we're doing biz dev sales, there are other days we're I'm putting together PowerPoints, working on Excel spreadsheets, going to conferences, managing groups, um, account managers. And so honestly, every day is different. I've been traveling a lot, uh, part of the job as we continue expanding. <laughs> That's the startup world. They say you put out a fire and leave a fire extinguisher behind. <laughs> <laughs> that is the truth. That is the truth. So with your travel, is that for trade shows and conferences, things like that? It is. It's also to interact with a lot of hospital administrators and on the biz dev sales side. So given, um, given my clinical and business background in healthcare, it can communicate with hospital administrators on a different level compared to some others. And so it helps with that process. And then also getting hospitals, once they go live, getting them up and off the ground. So uh, leading the account managers in the sense of providing proper training to the staff, being able to implement the solution correctly and efficiently in order for them to maximize what it is they're getting out of our product. Talk about what the platform is when we're when we're looking at Bioscape Digital. What what exactly is it? How are you delivering it? And what are we trying to do with it? Absolutely. So it's we provide tablet devices for hospitals to utilize, um, and they provide it to their patients. And so essentially what it is, it's a patient engagement platform, a cost-effective patient engagement platform that hospitals provide to their patients while they're there. 
So there's a combination of entertainment in the form of games. There's a lot of educational material, uh, both say, for instance, they're going for a procedure, they can learn a little bit about it before they go in. Afterwards, there's aftercare instructions, discharge instructions, if you will, for them to take advantage of while they're there. There's also ways for them to schedule outpatient clinic appointments from the platform directly in order to integrate the referral networks in the hospital in order to maximize, generate more income for that hospital or generate more revenue, sorry. There's also um, an opportunity for them to get information on health insurance. So by um, providing their own information, demographics with regards to household income, zip code, things like that, they can get a real-time estimate of how much it would cost on the healthcare exchange. And they can actually sign up for health insurance right directly from the platform. There's also ways, and there's, those are some of the benefits for the, the patients. The hospitals in turn can do, um, they can advertise different products on the, or services on the actual platform through screensavers, pre-roll videos. So we have actually local hospitals here in Atlanta who will advertise about a certain procedure for patients to get more information on and them being able to sign up and register more information and getting more information in return. We're working on a few other things. Patients being able to directly order food directly from the tablets, it interacting with the dining staff, cafeteria staff. So it's one less person. It's saving the nurse and the staff time to focus more on actual clinical medicine rather than some of the administration. Can they do tools. Uber Eats to get some real <laughs> food in the hospital? We're not though, quite there yet, but okay. um, one step at a time. Okay. With, with the device, are you, is it hardware dependent? Meaning the, the device is actually coming from Bioscape. They're not able to do, because many of the hospitals are using mobile devices for a number of different things on the floor and, and in the various units. Are they able to do BYOD sort of thing and install your application? Or is it, this is an additional device they're going to be using? Yeah, so this is an additional device they would be using. So we provide the hardware and software to the hospitals um, they essentially rent the platform for us to provide uh, to their patients. And so um, most common question that always comes up is how do you prevent the tablets from being mm-hmm. stolen? Mm-hmm. So essentially, it's a security cable and electrical cable that run together and it's essentially tethered to the yeah. wall. So, okay. So it's tied in. That's right. And so that essentially the tablets live in the hospital, in the patient's room and the patients constantly rotate. You know, the providers don't have to worry about bringing it to the patient um, or making sure they're unplugged, not plugged. It's always on. It lives in the room. And uh, that way, as the patients turn over, they're exposed to the tablet. Now, how do they, how do they, from the perspective of infection control, how do they, are they able to clean those devices fairly well? How do, how do they do that kind of process? It's kind of a odd thought, I suppose. No, it's a very important um, item to consider, you know, hospitals, are notoriously known for non-comial infections. And so um, specially designed the hardware in order to make it safe on that same uh, resources they have. The so hospital can tolerate have. a cleaning. Exactly. Yeah. So the, they usually have these um, wipes, if you will, uh, cavi wipes that are safe on our tablets as well. And so it's nothing additional that the hospital has to really purchase in order to do that. They use the same equipment or the same items that they use to clean some of the other medical devices they can use on our product as well. With engagement, patient engagement and patient satisfaction being important factors now because of the ACA, I can see where hospitals would be receptive to the idea. What's the implementation like? Are you finding is there, when it comes down to trying to train people on how to use it, is it 
What's that process like for you? No, absolutely. So our development team has done a phenomenal job in terms of creating the UI to make it really easy for the patients to utilize. So we're in hospitals that, uh, we're in a hospital in in Florida for a couple of hospitals in Florida where the age demographic is a little bit older, but they're maximizing the tablets more so than some of their other hospitals. So, you know, I think it's very intuitive. The platform is very intuitive. And once everything's touchscreen, um, the icons are, are large. It's easy. The The actual educational material is in the form of audio, text, and visuals. Everyone's got a different learning style. They can get through the information at their own pace. Um, so it's fairly intuitive in that sense. And how do, you, how do you get a trial going with a hospital? And it seems like, are there certain departments that are more receptive than others? Absolutely. So we do customize our entire solution for the hospital itself. And, and what we have found is Hospitals will pilot the actual platform in one department or two departments. Once they see the benefits, which is usually fairly quickly, they'll start adding additional tablets in different different departments, depending on, again, what you mentioned on, on patient satisfaction. It's usually somehow related to that in the sense of trying to increase their scores in the hospitals in that department. So we have some hospitals that have just one department and the emergency room, 10 emergency room labor and delivery, and cardiac floors tend to be our sweet spots um, where they first low-hanging fruit, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then they'll expand throughout that process. So some hospitals have over 100 tablets, others have 15. So it really depends as each hospital um, where they are in the life cycle. It's interesting that you're able to use the the device to be able to, in some instances, communicate with the 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 folks in the cafeteria, how do you Im- implement that? It, what's on the other end in the cafeteria, for example, or other other ways they might be able to use this in sort of, I don't know if two-way communication is the right way to use it, but sending a message to someone elsewhere in the hospital. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So again, that's a, it's a, something that we're piloting. We just piloted last week, actually. Uh. Um, so essentially how that's going to work is there's going to be a receiving end, a tablet device where they'll receive all the incoming orders and they'll be able to execute upon that. The dining staff will be able to take whatever orders that are being implemented on the tablets in the rooms. We can either link with an existing platform that the hospital already has, or we're actually towing around with making our own. And so that's still, you know, being in the process of, uh, of working itself out. But at the same sense, we do have ways for, um, one of the key elements of our platform is the real-time patient feedback. And so essentially how that works is patients or ho- the department can identify which questions they would like to ask the patients while they're there. And then in real time, those answers get transmitted to the staff. And that way, um, I'm sure as we all know, when a patient gets discharged from the hospital, they get that official survey in the mail HCAPs, Triscany, whatever it may be, and hospitals are reimbursed accordingly. Now, if there are certain questions that the hospital will have answers to before the patient gets discharged, they can perform real-time service recovery, if you will, before the patient goes home, before they receive that official survey in the mail. So there's, uh, there's a few applications that we have in order to transmit that information. And that's uh, one of the items that we're thinking about using for the cafeteria staff as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, I think that's potentially powerful for them to be able to get that information in real time and hopefully be able to turn some of that uh, negative experience around if that's what they're dealing with. 
uh, as you mentioned, most of the time that information is not coming back until I'm either getting discharged or I, I get a survey in the mail after I've been discharged and now there's nothing you can do about it other than maybe send them a, I'm sorry kind of thing. That's absolutely right. And to be honest, what we found on average is that you know, 75, 80% of the time, the feedback's positive. And so if anything, that's a positive reassurance to the staff that they're doing a great job. But in that 15, 20% chance that it is negative feedback, as you mentioned, it's a way for them to, in real time, proactively... Yeah. Feedback's more valuable when it's you know, close to the time it happens. That's so exactly do something right. About it. That's exactly right. And then their perception of whatever, you know, any negative thoughts about that current stay hopefully it had been resolved. And then in addition to all the other benefits on the actual tablet platform, all of that goes to patient satisfaction. And I have a question about content. It seems like there's a lot of content. How much of it does Bioscape generate? How much can be repurposed from the hospitals or other sources? No, that's a great question. So we ideally would like to get content from the hospital because it's their physicians or their staff that is producing these educational content. It resonates better with the staff or the patient's because that's who they're seeing. And if it's similar to what um, is going on at the actual hospital site, the better. So we do have a good amount of information that we receive from the hospital in terms of the educational material. Um, and then we also develop a lot of the content in-house. Uh, again, our developers are do a phenomenal job with regards to gathering the information and then being able to produce it into our platform and UI. Um, but then we do have a few third-party partners. Um, we, we work with Sherwick. There's another um, company that helps with our pediatric content. And so we definitely utilize the different resources available to us. And then especially we can, um, either the AHA or NIH or CDC, if there's content that's relevant for the actual hospital for that department, or if they request to have that information, we can have that on the platform as well. Hmm. Talking with Vice President of Healthcare Strategy, Sean Kant of Bioscape Digital. They've developed a mobile platform that's being utilized in healthcare delivery um, locations like uh, hospital ERs particularly and other places where long wait times may be occurring, uh, both for family as well as the patient. And this is a way to do several things at once, educate the patient around important things that might help the patient's outcome in the long run, as well as make them aware of new services or other services that the hospital or health system provides that the patient may not know about, and just general health and uh, entertainment type information as well. Is it, is it video? What, what, kind of, what kind of formats of information are they seeing? Is it, is it mainly reading or is there digital or, I mean, uh, di video in, included? How is it, how's that flow? Yeah, no, definitely. So on the entertainment aspect, it's, you know, your traditional games, solitaire, blackjack. Um, we have some pediatric friendly games. Um, Ninja Fruits tends to be our, our common popular one. Yeah. Um, with regards to the education, it's predominantly, there are some videos with, with regards to the discharge instructions. And then we also, for the what to expect section, what we call it prior to the procedure, a lot of those modules are in that combination of audio, visual, and text. So it's a combination of all of those that we kind of develop. We feel like that's resonated well with the patient populations and covers most of the spectrum that's out there. I mean, you get a log of every session, so you can see where the patient's how they utilize the tablet. So that's got to be valuable information as well. Oh, no, 100%. So we know that 
that's something that the hospital administrators are definitely actively focusing on uh, the metrics. So we can tally how long, what patients are watching, how long they're watching it for, what they sign up for. Um, and that's where the ROI comes into play, you know, especially the actual module views, you know, you can identify how much time the staff is saving by them watching some of these, especially the discharge videos, because while they're watching that, the staff can be getting the discharge paperwork ready. When they reconnect, they can have a more engaged conversation with regards to that specific condition rather than having to cover the fundamentals um, for every patient. But then the signups, um, primary care signups, uh, more information on diabetes screening, whatever it may be, that's additional revenue for the hospital. And so that tends to be very important uh, metric for the hospitals and their administrators. Have you been able to begin to get statistics back now around patient satisfaction? Because that was one of the big things that we're trying to address um, around things like wait time and, and compliance and with prescribed uh, follow-ups and different things like that. Are you seeing some statistics come in now from some of the clients who've been deploying your platform? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, patient satisfaction, everyone's throwing the kitchen sink at patient satisfaction. So was it the golf cart that drove you from the parking lot to the emergency room or was it the tablet devices or was it the staff? It's a whole conglomerate of everything. And what we found though, is that there are many correlations with our tablets and the patient satisfaction scores, especially when it comes to the service recovery opportunities, there's a way for them to doc, there's a way for staff to document that service recovery on negative feedback. Um, and we tally that and the higher that score is, the larger, we, there's a definite correlation with patient satisfaction scores on that front. So things like that, we do tally um, and provide those numbers to hospitals. And then they also help us, providing us the information of what their scores look like and where our scores were on the patient engagement, on the feedback questions. And so we can, of course, since the whole entire platform is customizable, we can tailor the questions appropriately if there's other questions that they need to work on or they don't feel like it's an accurate representation of what their patient satisfaction scores, we can work with the hospital to figure out what exactly the, the new question mm -hmm. should be. And Where do you anticipate going now that you're, you're underway? You've been working with some large health systems around the country, which sounds like that gives you an opportunity to expand within them. But are there other things that you see doing with the platform or uh, different places you see deploying it? Where, where are you going from here? Yeah, no, that's a... That's a a question that comes up every day for us. Um, you know, we've been very fortunate having been able to expand and get to where we are today based on what we have and the resources that we have. And so we're in about eight states now across the Southeast. Um, we're looking to, of course, expand beyond that, working with new healthcare, healthcare systems, as you mentioned. So everywhere from the Midwest, this Northeast, out to the West, um, we need to strategically figure out how we're going to execute upon that given the resources that we have and our account management team, our ultimate goal is to get into as many hospitals as possible across the country. So how do we execute on that and what the best way is that's for, um, that's what we're working on now. And I think we're doing a, doing a good job getting there. What do you think has been the biggest challenge for you in this, in this process? It's, you know, as every growing company expands, 
trying to tackle too much given the resources that you have. And I think that is one of our biggest challenges is that we're trying to grow and all the stipulations and constraints associated with that. Um, you know, we can't just have a random hospital in California and then all of us, all our other hospitals around in the Southeast and making that work or going into a small surgery or, or an outpatient clinic with a room for four tablets and then not being able to grow beyond that in terms of scale. And so um, I think we've done a good, great job of being able to grow and get to where we are. I think we can continue organically grow um, with as we continue developing and, and attaining new hospitals. But I would say the biggest challenge that we face right now is that, as we mentioned before, a lot of us hold many hats. And I think as we continue to expand, we'll hire additional people to kind of focus on specific items and that'll really help us leverage their skill sets in order to tackle those and move forward. Who needs to hear about you when you're going to the hospital? Is it a CIO, CTO kind of people or or are you talking more on the operations side, people that would be facing some of the outcomes related to those engagement and satisfaction scores? No, that's a great question. It's uh, it's almost a, a little bit, it, it's the the C-suite for sure, um, because they're the ones making the final decision, especially the chief nursing officer tends to be really engaged um, as well as a patient experience officer. And then the department directors as well tend to have um, a large influence on what's going to be on it and the execution of it. So we work with them. In addition to them at the marketing department, um, as we mentioned before, there's a lot of different resources and services that the hospital already provides to the patient, but sometimes it doesn't get it doesn't come across or come in front of the patient as much as they want. And so again, the tablet is another avenue vehicle for them to do that. I know that you've got to jump into another meeting here before we let you go. I want to make sure we talk about resources that Bioscape Digital is looking for, whether that's additional sources of funding, whether that's collaborations, partnerships, whatever that might be to give you. uh, What do you need? (laughs) Health Connects Health always asks. No, 100%. So for us, I would say our largest need is probably introduction to hospitals. Um, right now, it, that's our main target is to get into as many hospitals as possible. And so, again, we talked about before, we're definitely the Southeast is a huge, I mean, we're based in Atlanta, so a large population of our hospitals is here. And there's a lot of hospitals that we're not in the Southeast as well. So we'd like to take advantage of that. Um, but in terms of a need perspective, yeah, I would say being able to get in front of some of the hospital administrators across um, mostly the Southeast, but anywhere, that would be our largest and, need. And we hope to have many on September 21st at the Georgia Aquarium. So Absolutely. You'll, you'll join us then. Oh, 100%. It's a, <laughs> it's a phenomenal experience, healthcare staff. And I actually went to the annual conference last year and met a lot of great people there. So um, look forward to it again this year. So if I'm a C-suite or a hospital executive, a nursing officer, whatever the case may be, and I, I'm listening to today, where do I go to get more information, get connected and get my questions answered about how this might help our hospitals, patient engagement and satisfaction? Absolutely. So our website is www.bioscapedigital.com. And you can also email info at bioscapedigital.com to get more information. And we'd love to work with you. And of course, we'll have links we'll on the, the website as well, yeah. so folks can get tied in with you as well. Any final thoughts before we let you get back to your uh, upcoming meeting here? No, I appreciate appreciate the opportunity. I think it's, um, again, we 
definitely pride ourselves on our product and then we think it, it there's a need out there for this type of product and we're happy to provide it and hope to look to expand and work with Health Connect South to make that happen. Well, we're certainly happy to help you get the word out about what you're doing and talk about the ways that it is impacting patient outcomes and, and hospital outcomes at the same time. So uh, great having you here today. Thank you for having yeah. me. Yeah, thanks, Sean. And up next, we've got Mashir Ahmed. He's the founder of a company called FraudScope, and I'm certainly interested in hearing how you're going about what you're doing, Mashir. Before we get too far into FraudScope, talk about your background. What's your, what's your history and what led you up to this place here where you're launching into this company? Definitely. So, um, so I just got my PhD in healthcare security from Georgia Tech. When I started my PhD uh, in the cybersecurity department, um, the federal government was actually incentivizing the adoption of electronic medical records. And at that point, I realized that once this data goes electronic, there's going to be a whole host of new issues that will uh, come about. And the security of the sensitive data is going to be very important. So throughout my PhD dissertation, I worked on securing this healthcare data. If I had to summarize my entire dissertation in a sentence and simplify it, I would say it, it's basically preventing bad guys from having access to this data. And we've talked a lot about mobile devices. That's a space in which I've worked in a lot because I did realize back then that tablets would proliferate mobile devices and people would start accessing this data on mobile devices. The next step was um, if bad guys do get access to this data, how do you figure out what data did they get access to? How much data? Whose data? How do you start rectifying the medical records? Uh, how do you start making those notifications to the people that need to be notified about what has actually happened? And the final segment of my dissertation was, once the bad guys have this data, how do you prevent them from monetizing on this data and making money of this data? Because the criminals, when they take something, they're trying to make some money off of it. So, And that final part of my research is what led me to found my company, FraudScope, uh, my Frotsko, the company is actually based on the technology that I actually created as a part of my dissertation. So I hope that kind of gives a quick <laughs> overview of how I, I got to this space. So yeah. was there, were there particular areas that you were finding? When I think about like Medicare and fraud, the, the place I'm thinking about it more is at the provider level. At a, uh, with somebody that's billing Medicare for service and they're either amping up the acuity of a visit somehow, some way, or even in some cases, they're charging Medicare for services that were never, never actually delivered. Uh, are you, are you not so focused on that as you are on fraud that it comes from somehow getting access to my information and then doing something with it nefarious in that way? So I'm focused on all types of healthcare fraud. Uh, so that is a big portion of healthcare fraud where you okay. have legitimate providers that try to add on to the services they actually provided and try to build a separate code than what was actually provided to the patient. Right. Uh, they call that up upcoding and you yeah. have unbundling where they perform uh, two codes uh, simultaneously and they should provide it for a cheaper amount. But what they do is they unbundle it and try to build the government or a, a health insurance company for a larger amount. And that sort of fraud does exist, but there are also other types of fraud. There's another type of fraud where a provider what he does is, uh, like you mentioned, he provides unnecessary treatment to patients. And there was a very big case last year where you had an oncologist who, and this is an extreme case, it's not, right. a, it's not a very common case, but it does happen in America as well, where you have an oncologist who actually, every single patient that came in, he diagnosed them as having cancer and forced them to go through painful and expensive chemotherapy treatments. 
And much later on, people found out that they never had cancer and he was just <laughs> doing this uh, to yeah. make more money. So that type of fraud does exist. Uh, but more specifically, we've seen a trend emerging where cyber criminals have started targeting healthcare data more aggressively over the past two years. If you look at the statistics in 2014, you had about 1.8 million patient identities that were actually stolen by cyber criminals. But last year in 2015, um, we had over 112 million patient identities. So we hmm. see an exponential jump in the amount of identities cyber criminals have been stealing. And we saw large breaches such as that uh, one that happened at Anthem and other places as well. Uh, the Washington Post had an article saying 2015 is the year of the health data hack. A couple of weeks ago, IBM had a report saying that healthcare is the most attacked industry by cyber criminals right now. So cyber criminals are moving towards this data, and I can discuss why uh, later on. But what they're trying to do mainly with this data is they're trying to monetize on this data. And what they do is they take this data and they sell it on black markets. You have other criminals that buy healthcare data on black markets, and they set up something called a phantom clinic, which is a fake clinic. The clinic does not exist. It could be a P.O. box address. Uh, so, they, uh, so they create this clinic. They take stolen provider identities, stolen patient identities, and they go ahead and start uh, filing claims to government and health insurance programs. And they make 10 to $20 million. And before anyone realizes what's going on, they close shop and move to another state and start doing this again. And I've been speaking to people in the industry, and they say that they lose sleep at night because of what's happening and they're not able to keep up to uh, the detection techniques are not sophisticated enough to actually catch these fraudsters. There was a very big case in 2010 called the Medicaid fraud case. You had um, organized crime and they're getting very, very involved. And we can discuss that as well, why they're getting involved. Um, they created this huge ring of phantom clinics and uh, it operated over 25 states and they made $160 million before they were caught. And the claims they were actually filing to Medicaid had uh, an eye doctor doing a bladder test <laughs> or an ENT specialist doing a pregnancy ultrasound, and they were still getting paid. And that just shows us how sophisticated the level of detection in the healthcare space is currently. Yeah, it's not. Talk about some of the statistics about how big the problem is, because it's pretty staggering. Right. So, uh, so generally, when people think about fraud and making money off of things, you think about credit card fraud or the financial sector. But if you look at the statistics uh, in, the, in America itself, credit card fraud amounts for only about $8 billion annually. You have other types of emerging fraud like identity theft that amount for about $30 billion annually. But healthcare fraud is massive and estimates say it amounts for up to $272 billion annually. It's a big problem. Not many people are talking about it. And We've seen a lot of sophistication in the detection techniques in the financial sector. You've seen a lot of companies, a lot of new technologies emerge there. But healthcare has not really caught up with that level of sophistication. They've not worked towards advancing the detection techniques, and they're really backward. Uh, and someone in the industry actually told me that the healthcare detection space is actually 10 years behind the financial that fraud detection space. I mean, these numbers are staggering. 112 million people, that's like one in three Americans have right. had their identity stolen. $272 billion. I think that's Apple's annual revenues around $140 billion. So you're saying there's two Apple companies' revenues that have been stolen in the system? Yes. And out, out of what total? What's 272 out of what total? 
I transactions. Mean, I think the healthcare cost is really high right now and it's going up every year. So this number 272 is actually going to go up. And as cyber criminals, like I mentioned, are targeting uh, healthcare data increasingly, this number is going to go up higher and higher. And if we look at how well we're actually doing in detection, uh, detecting these, this kind of fraud, so uh, Medicare actually publishes uh, public reports on how well they're doing and what they're doing. So they say, according to their reports, that they're, all, they're only detecting about 5% of existing fraud within Medicare, which means about 95% is being missed. And this is a huge opportunity for anyone to come in and start improving the detection space. And that's what I'm trying to do with uh, the technology I created and the company I founded. Without fraud scope technology, how are they finding the breaches and the fraud now? So that's a very good question. So, uh, so one thing we need to understand before we actually answer that question is um, how does the space actually work? So there's several laws that exist in America that require reimbursement to take place in a short period of time. So if uh, yeah, the laws and that. Yes. Yeah. So when they get a claim, they have to pay it out, pay the reimburse the amount mm-hmm. out. And if they don't do that in that period of time, they get fined. So what health insurance companies generally do is when the claim comes in, they check for simple things like is the beneficiary covered? Is the provider covered? And uh, is the provider alive? Apparently dead providers filing claims is a big problem that exists in this space. So simple checks like that, and they go ahead and pay the claim. Once the claim has been paid out, they run some more techniques on the data. They try to analyze the data deeper, and uh, they try to figure out who they should not have paid. (laughs) And then they try to figure out (laughs) the limited resources that we do have. How do we prioritize the right people to actually acquire, uh, recover the maximum amount? So if someone does a couple of hundred bucks of fraud, they're going to let it go. Someone does bigger amount, millions of dollars, hundreds of millions, they'll try to target that. But guess what? The couple of hundred bucks all across the nation add up to these billions of dollars. So if you're actually wondering why your health insurance premiums are going up, it's because the beneficiaries ultimately end up uh, paying for this amount. And there are reports that say that a family normally pays hundreds of dollars more every year just to eat up the costs of fraud that's within the healthcare system. Well, when you were doing your PhD work, I mean, what what evolved for you? Where, where did you begin to see, okay, here's the opportunity, here's how we need to go about this, and then we can talk more now about the actual technology that, that you're utilizing with Fraudsco. Right. So, um, so to give a little more information on what they're actually doing, I, I had the pleasure of meeting a couple of fraud investigators at some of these big insurance companies, and I asked them, so uh, do you use analytics to detect fraud? How do you detect fraud? And they're like, yeah, we use analytics. I'm like, what? Well, do you use some kind of software? How do you do it? And they told me, we use Excel. And I was like, <laughs> no, no, that's not analytics. And I come from a computer science background, and that's definitely not analytics. And unfortunately, we have national organizations that tackle healthcare fraud that actually have a two-day program to use Excel for data mining to catch healthcare fraud, which is kind of moving things in the wrong direction. And there are some analytics platforms out there. Uh, you know, they, they do general health analytics and they have a fraud detection component on the side. But these are mainly uh, simplistic analysis system that require inputs of known and predicted fraud patterns. So when I saw the existing state of how 
the healthcare fraud industry is actually running right now. I saw there's a big opportunity. We have so much advanced technology today, especially in the cybersecurity space. We're, we're used to dealing with all these types of fraud and catching criminals and things of that sort. So I wanted to bring that mindset, the cybersecurity mindset and the sophisticated technology into this space, which has not seen much innovation. So to answer your question on what's different about my technology is that we created a comprehensive claims investigation platform. And what that does is as claims are coming in, we, we figure out which claims are suspicious and which came, claims look legitimate and kind of risk core and give information to the fraud investigator to tell them that you need to look at these claims before you pay them out, mm-hmm. because most likely these are not legitimate claims. And we give them information on why we think that the claim is suspicious. And the technology uh, is a really good technology. Um, we actually won, uh, actually won the top cybersecurity research award at Georgia Tech recently for this same technology that we developed. And the way the technology works is that unlike the existing tools out there that require input of known and predicted fraud patterns, we don't give the system any fraud pattern. We give it all the draw data and tell the system, tell me what fraud is looking like in this data. I'm not going to tell the system what fraud looks like and look for these kind of things, which is what the competitors are actually doing. We know that uh, the criminals in the space are very sophisticated. So um, you're either dealing with organized crime, you're dealing or with providers uh, that are trying to pad uh, their claims or things of that sort. They know how to evade existing detection techniques. So our system actually, no matter how they continue to uh, create these new uh, fraud schemes, we're able to detect these new fraud schemes and provide information before claims are paid out so we can actually save money up front rather than pay and chase for that money later on. Well, if it won't, if it won't somehow help the fraudsters, we can talk a little bit more about what it is that you do. I always get frustrated with the news when they talk about how these criminals were able to pull this off by doing this and that, and they give the the rest of the criminals <laughs> who hadn't thought of that yet some great ideas. If it if in your mind it doesn't help them, I mean, what are the ways that it typically starts to say, wait a second, this this is a pattern? Because I, I assume that's part of it is patterns. Yes. So. So generally what people do in uh, machine learning, data mining kinds of things is they take the data and they, uh, they kind of decompose it into signal and noise. Mm-hmm. And they look at the signal. So the signal tells you how well the provider kind of conforms to everyone else and follows the norms. And existing systems, what they do is they take out the noise to have a very strong signal and try to identify fraud using that signal. But as a part of my PhD, I figured out that the signal doesn't work too well in identifying fraud. And the part that the people throw out, which is termed as noise, is what is helping me identify fraud. So I figured out, so noise is supposed to be random bits of data and they don't make any sense. But if you look closely within the noise and you identify a pattern emerging within the noise, then you realize that someone's trying to game the system. There's something happening systematically, which is being captured in the noise. And I look for that in the noise and look at these patterns and look at the providers that are generating these patterns. And I know it's a little bit high level, but uh, kind of, so that's what the people are missing that I'm able to catch with my research. And we, cl- we call this technology the claims intelligence technology. So it's able to take this information out and then tell us, okay, these are the reasons, these are the providers or these are the people that are trying to game the system. And these are the reasons why so fraud investigator can actually okay. act on this data. Well, it seems like as a bystander here, it seems like a phantom clinic ought to be pretty easy to identify over a long period of time. That is true, but the issue is they don't really uh, um, they don't really operate for a long period of mm-hmm. time. They they the way they're designed is to probably shut down in a few months or maybe a year and close shop and move to another place. So 
the the way the currently health insurance companies are looking at identifying this is that once a quarter or uh, in a certain time period, they start analyzing the claims. So by the time they go get to the analysis step, they've actually kind of closed shop and moved on. So even if they do realize these egregious fraud cases, by the time they do realize it's just so delayed that they're not able to catch these people. So, but you're absolutely right. If they did operate for a longer period of time, they would stand out significantly. It just seems like the security guards, they have them go scan a post with their, you know, with the barcode to make sure they were physically at the place. It seems like when you go to the doctor's office, they give you reams and reams of paper. Why couldn't you say someone was physically at a location and mm-hmm. match that to the, the well, record? I, I don't with know. With EMRs, there's less and less paper now. Uh, it would seem that if I'm a new clinic or a new facility that I would, based on what you're saying, be very much under close scrutiny. Yeah. Scrutiny. You're going to follow me pretty hard to see if there's certain patterns and things like that. And uh, it would seem that that those new clinics, I mean, obviously there's legitimate new clinics going in all the time, but that's one of the spaces based on what you're saying. That's a hotbed for, you know, significant nefarious activity. That is true. And uh, I guess in the past they haven't been scrutinized to the extent they should have been. So they have started uh, increasingly scrutinizing these new clinics so we can look at uh, if they are committing fraud. And like you mentioned, so to ident- so most of the times the data is actually stolen and the patients um, are not actually there. And the only reason, only way a patient can actually figure out is if, if their identity has been stolen and used in a phantom clinic is through the explanation of benefits. And Patients generally don't have an incentive to look at that because it's not their money that's going out the door. It's the insurance company's money or the employer's money. And the second thing is, even if they do care, they look at it, it's not easy to understand. It's very complex. And um, so sometimes patients believe, feel generally that they're not affected by this directly. But like I mentioned, there is a financial impact, but there is a greater impact beyond that as well, which is um, beyond the financial impact, which... um, if someone uses your identity, for example, there's medical identity theft or some way your medical identity has been used and something gets corrupted in your health insurance record, you could fail a physical exam for employment because of something in your medical record that you never had, you never got treated for, but it's in your medical record. Mm-hmm. Actually, a corrupted medical record could kill a person. People don't generally think of it that way. If someone stole your identity and received treatment and they put the long, wrong blood type, in your record and you get into an accident and you show up at the hospital, they can't ask you what your blood type is and they just look at your record and give you the blood, something bad can happen. Maybe someone got did uh, remove their appendicitis using your record and you have the same problem now, you show up to the doctor, doctor looks at your record, he's like, this can't be it, you don't have it anymore and he's gonna try to treat you for something totally different. So this can have a bigger impact on the patient, they just don't realize it directly right now. So who is the fraud scope customer? It would seem like CMS should be beating down your door to have you come on board. Yes, and uh, we have spoken to some of the high-level people at CMS, and we are continuing our conversations there. But the primary customers are health insurance companies. Um, uh, the big health insurance companies were interested in selling our product to them. Also, recovery contractors that actually help them recover. They perform, provide services to help recover uh, the money lost to fraud, waste, and abuse. Another thing is providers as well. So uh, healthcare systems are, when they submit claims, sometimes uh, the claim payments get delayed because things look suspicious to health insurance companies. And 
usually the people that insurance companies go after because of the unsophisticated level of detection are the legitimate people. And unnecessarily legitimate and honest providers get harassed for yep. medical records. And they're not actually focusing on the right people. So we want to provide our system to the providers and say, look, just run it through our system and we'll tell you if there's a, if it might get delayed because something looks suspicious, you can clean up your um, records as well. Um, so things of that yeah. sort. You mentioned the impact on the individual. I'm curious about the population health when CMS reports these statistics are these fraudulent transactions included? Are, um, are they overstating the cases of certain types of things because there were claims uh, settled for them? I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the statistics. Okay. But that's a very good question, though. When I engage FraudScope as a provider of, of security and, and analysis of my claims processing, is I assume it's sort of like a subscription service. I'm going to be having you on an ongoing basis, evaluating you're a partner. There's nothing, I'm, it's not a one-time purchase. I'm not purchasing some sort of application that I'm now installing and it's good to go. It's like an ongoing relationship, I assume. That is correct. So we will have a subscription model where you can sign up uh, for a period of time and use our services and use our product at your place to uh, help investigators kind of prioritize and look at the right things rather than going after more legitimate and honest providers. Founder of FraudScope, Mashir Ahmed, is with us in the studio. We're learning about how they are able to utilize data analysis to identify fraud billing, fraudulent billing against Medicare and, and insurance companies, hopefully before the bill gets paid, as he was talking about. I'm sure it's very difficult for them to ask the criminals, hey, that was uh, fraudulently billed. I, I need you to get send that money back. So being able to stop those payments from going out before they ever leave the door is the way you're going to be able to stop this. How, how extensively are you being utilized now? You have some clients that are live with you now? So we are a very early stage company right now. We're in pilot talks with a couple of people who have actually approached us to use our technology. So we're getting the product ready for the pilot and we are planning to launch the pilot very soon. Uh, but we are very early stage. I just got my PhD a few weeks ago. So mm -hmm. now I'm focusing full time on the technology and the company and getting, trying to grow very quickly. How do you, how do you test it? Do you start it running? And then as part of the test, you submit claims using a, I guess, techniques that some of the historical fraudsters have utilized to see if the system pings that with a, with a flag how does it alert you to? to, to um, that's the... a very good question. So to test our system, we actually use real Medicare claims data and we use historical claims from 2012, 2013. We have access to services, procedures, drugs prescribed, and we ran it through our system. And I'll give you an example of one particular provider type, which is independent clinical labs that are a major source of fraud. So for the 2012 data, we ran it through our system and they kind of ranked all of these labs according to the probability of risk. There are about eight labs that actually defrauded the government in the year 2012 that we currently know about. And they were all caught due to whistleblowers, um, except for, with the exception of maybe one or two. Uh, they were caught due to whistleblowers. So there's several levels of analytics that runs for Medicare claims. Just to give an overview of what's happening, you have recovery audit contractors, own program integrity contractors, you have the Office of Inspector General. They all, they all have analytics. They all are running it, but they're still depending on whistleblowers. And these whistleblowers came out last year. So it took three years and we don't know when the fraud actually began because the data I have is just 2012, 2013. So it took up to three years for these whistleblowers to actually come out and for the government to figure out, oh, none of our analytics actually caught these, but they've actually been committing fraud. 
But guess what? The top people on my list, all of them were on the top of my list. Uh, and my system said they had the highest risk score. And the one on the top on my list committed fraud for $256 million in that year. Uh, he, the second one is $75 million. The third one is $40 million. These are one, two, three on my list out of all the providers. So the government also has public reports on um, where they say how they're actually detecting this fraud. And for clinical labs, uh, they recommend the investigation uh, of a bunch of labs. And the way they work is that they create these 12 rules, heuristics that actually they call measures uh, that are indicative of fraud, what they think fraud would look like. And each measure could ha have as many as 15% of the labs that actually file claims. And these are not ranked. So you take all the 12 together and you have these almost a thousand labs and you tell a fraud analyst, go ahead and investigate these. And, and all of them have the same priority. In comparison, my system actually prioritizes the top people and the top 3% have all known fraudulent labs contained within them. So we kind of take the limited resources that people have and kind of prioritize it in the right place mm -hmm. to help them recover this uh, uh, money quicker so we can stop losses due to this, these amounts. As claims come in, then what it's doing is if it sees particular patterns, then it's got some sort of a, a reporting mechanism where it's either visually flagging certain records or pinging me. We, we've identified it generates some sort of a list, you're saying, that, that says these are highly suspicious. Yes. So we kind of, the good claims, we push them out quicker. So we don't want to delay those payments. And the ones that are suspicious, we kind of rank them and tell the investigator, look at these before you pay them out because they are very highly suspicious. So that's kind of like we're trying to streamline the process. Instead of looking at the claims after the payments are made out and there's very less you can do, we try to focus that effort beforehand and say that, look at these claims now before you pay them out because these might be committing egregious fraud. What is necessary to do a, a pilot with, with FraudScope? Um, nothing. Just uh, give us a call. Contact us. We'll bring our technology over to their place and we'll test it out. So, I mean, we're if anyone is interested in uh, piloting a product and we are looking for additional pilot partners, we'd definitely be uh, interested in what would be involved with that for them. Are they if they're a tester or a pilot, are they paying for the service at the same time or, or is it a reduced rate? How does it flow? Uh, it kind of depends. So I guess when we get to the talks, we'll get into details uh, with that. Um, even if we do charge, it'll be a very minimal amount that we will charge for the pilot itself. I'm sure it'll cover the cost of the fraud easily. Right. Have you figured out the way that you're going to go to market or is that part of what this testing is going to get you, the pricing? and Right. We're still kind of finalizing. Like I mentioned, we're early stage startup, so we're getting those details ironed out. And probably in the next couple of weeks, we'll have something uh, very solid on how we want to have the pricing model. And you said that the criminals are sophisticated, so this is a moving target. Yes. Right? So yes. The, the you solve all today's problems, but FraudScope's prospects are still bright because there's criminals will come up with new ways to try and defraud the CMS. Exactly. I mean, and that's what makes uh, this space very exciting for us because, I mean, uh, the criminals have had it easy so far. They didn't have to innovate in their criminal tactics, but we're trying to up the bar now and say that, no, <laughs> we're going to catch you. And even if they keep innovating, we're going to be after them and we're going to constantly uh, save some dollars for everyone and hopefully reduce. There's the, new sheriff in town, right? Yes. <laughs> now, would there be would there be opportunities for partnering with a company like a Control Scan that we we talked to not too awful long ago? That's in the cybersecurity space, really focused on network security and and information security at 
you know, of my enterprise more than claims and things like that. They're really more about trying to lock down the data so that it can't be breached. Or if it gets breached, it's minimal and they can catch it before it gets very far. But it almost seems like partnering or collaborating on a B2B2C kind of relationship might be useful for somebody like you since there's definite... Yeah, control scheme is about a mindset that it, you know compliance is not security. There's more to it than, yeah. than that. Right, definitely. I mean, there is definitely an opportunity to look at things like that. But uh, we do handle complementary things. They work on how do you prevent data from getting breached. And once it gets breached, we come in and say, how do you prevent bad guys from making money off this data? So we do work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it might be complementary. We'll have to do an introduction there. Before we let you get back to the office, are there some final thoughts that you have before we get you back? No, I mean... Or what do you need? You heard the question. What can <laughs> Someone walks through the door, it's a prospect. What would that person look like? I mean, since we're an business? early company, I mean, we can take uh, help in any form that we can. I mean, we're definitely looking for pilot partners to launch our product. Uh, we're also growing our team. Um, so if someone has a skill that they think they can benefit us with, we're actively uh, seeking to add more people on our team. And also investments, uh, we do have some, but we're uh, still growing. So we need more investments as well. So as an early company, there's nothing I'm, I'm going to refuse at this point. Talk about where folks go to get more information about your company and your solutions. Uh, so uh, they can send an email to uh, info at fraudscopeinc.com. Uh, we have a website, www.fraudscopeinc.com. Uh, we're still kind of adding more information on there, but uh, there is some information that they can get on the website. And if you haven't done that so already, go over to healthconnectsouth.com. There will be information there about events coming up. And then, of course, you can register for the fall uh, annual Yeah, event. that'll be coming up soon. But go to healthconnectsouth.com and look for the September 20, under events, the September 21st uh, annual gathering at the Georgia Aquarium. And make sure you enter Radio X in the promo code. You'll get uh, a, a discount a discount on right. your res- registration fee. And if you're listening and you're in the healthcare arena around the Southeast or particularly around the Atlanta metro area, highly encourage you to come to this event because there's great speakers every year. Uh, last year was fantastic at the aquarium and it's going to be held there again. Beautiful uh, venue for, for such meetings. And I'll all but guarantee you're going to make some contacts there with people that, as we were talking about here, either turn into a collaboration for you or a resource that helps you move your mutual businesses forward. So make sure you get out to the annual Health Connect South event coming up September 21st. And if you're listening to the podcast, if you've not done so already, get over to the uh, iTunes store. That's the Apple logo in the upper left-hand corner of the show page. It'll take you to the podcast where Health Connect South radio shows podcast lives. And subscribe to us. That way, each week when we have a new episode come out, it'll be downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to listen when it is convenient for you. And we hope you turn around and share the link as well, because you might just put information in the hands of somebody that means something to you that really makes a difference for them. So we'll thank you in advance for that. And thanks for for making some time to join us in the studio here, Mashir. It's uh, I, I'm very intrigued by the the security and fraud detection Catch the bad guys. That's our money, right? Our taxpayers. No, thank you for having me here. No, I mean, this is what I live to do. So I'm I'm all about helping folks like you get the word out and be able to beat the bad guys because it really is a bummer that people work so hard at not working uh, and doing (laughs) things the wrong way. So uh, we're really happy to be helping everybody become familiar with Broadscope and what you're trying to do. Any final thoughts from you, Joe? No, five dozen shows on the books. It's great. We're looking forward to uh, tuning in next week. Well, everybody out there, thank you for making us a part of your day. Mashir, thanks for taking us taking some time to join us in the studio. 
And we look forward to having you back when we can talk more about some of the results as you get rolling with a number of clients on board who can talk about their their uh, ability to intercept these efforts to defraud both the government as well as the companies that are supporting the healthcare space. Definitely. It'd be my pleasure to come back again and give more details. Everybody out there, make an appointment to see us same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. Take care.